Hey there, today we are continuing on in our examination of the Sermon on the Mount found in chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel, which is where we're going to be today. And here we see Jesus taking up another tough subject. It centers around a phrase that I think might just be one of the most quoted portions of Scripture today. It also happens to be, I think, one of the most misunderstood and misapplied parts of the Bible. I'm referring to the famous line where Jesus says, judge not lest ye be judged also, or something to that effect, depending on which translation you're using. Jesus commands us, judge not lest ye be judged. This phrase has made it into our everyday conversation and it pops up regularly, mostly because I think there are so many instances where it can be applied. I don't know about you, but I will occasionally catch myself harboring a judgmental attitude for one reason or another. And sometimes it can be about the smallest of things. Pastor and author Chuck Swindoll gives us a good reminder of this. In his book, The Grace Awakening, He recounts an experience he once had while he was speaking at a Bible conference. And on the first night, he briefly met a couple who seemed very friendly and quite glad to be there at the conference. However, as the week went by, Swindoll noticed that roughly about 10 minutes into every uh, presentation that he made, the husband would be fast asleep. This experience started to irritate Swindoll after a few days, and by the time of the final meeting, he had pretty much decided that the man was there only to please his wife, and he was probably a pretty immature believer. At the conclusion of the final meeting, though, the wife wanted to take a moment to speak to Swindoll about something, and so he allowed her that time for a few minutes. Swindoll thought she probably wanted to talk to him about her husband's lack of interest in spiritual matters. But much to his surprise, Swindoll listened as the wife explained how her husband had terminal cancer. And they had attended the conference primarily at his insistence. It was his final wish to be able to attend, even though the pain medication that he was taking made him really drowsy. And then she told Swindoll this, he loves the Lord, and you are his favorite Bible teacher. He wanted to be here to meet you and to hear you, no matter what. Swindoll's reaction to that was basically this. He said, I stood there all alone, as deeply rebuked as I have ever been. Well, let me ask you, does that sound familiar at all? I think we've all been there judging the character, the motives, even the spirituality of the person standing before us, who we have disagreed with for some reason, or they've annoyed us, or they've just rubbed us the wrong way in some fashion. It's pretty hard to avoid when you think about it. I mean, wherever there are people, we're going to find people that we disagree with at some point. And we'll inevitably be tempted to think judgmentally of others, be they family or friends or co-workers, or just people that we might meet on the street. 
I think Jesus makes a point of addressing this in his sermon precisely because this experience is pretty universal. We're all going to find ourselves in this situation at one time or another. And he makes it clear that when we feel a judgmental attitude taking shape, we need to check our spirit and then we need to take another path that is more Christ-like. Now, in this instruction, I think Jesus gives us some things that can help us do precisely that. So I want to spend a few minutes examining these verses, and we're going to start in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. It's there that we read this. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now we need to drill down a little bit more into the original languages here to really understand what Jesus is saying. In the original Greek, the word for judge carries with it this idea of an action that is continuous and ongoing. And so what Jesus is talking about here is not a one-time assessment or decision about the rightness or the wrongness of some action or behavior. Rather, he's talking about a negative and judgmental attitude that persists and is ongoing. John Stott has a good way of describing this. He says Jesus is talking about a person who is a fault-finding critic, who is negative and destructive towards other people, and who actively enjoys seeking out the failings of others. In other words, it's someone who is constantly criticizing people, often in a way that tears them down or condemns them as worthless. This is the person who is always assuming the worst about others, throwing cold water even on their successes, and who focuses on others' mistakes ad nauseum. Another way of saying this would be this. Jesus is not so much calling out the action as he is calling out the person. What he's saying here is, don't be judgy. Don't be a mean-spirited, critical person. Do you know anyone like this? Sadly, we probably have all run into a person or two that fits this description. And Jesus says we are not to be this way, even in a small way. And he goes on to give a couple of good reasons for that. The first is actually quite practical. Basically, he says that if you start judging people in this way, then they will in turn judge you in the same harsh way. And so just on a very practical level, you want to avoid having this kind of spirit because you're just going to invite that kind of conflict coming at you in your life. But again, there's a little bit more going on in this verse. In biblical times, those of the Jewish faith wanted to avoid taking the Lord's name or God's name in vain. And often the way that they would do that is they would avoid using God's name altogether. Instead, God's name would just be implied in the things that they were saying. So they would simply say, for example, that such and such a thing is going to be done, and the implication is that God would do it. They would say something like, the temple is going to be built, and so what they're really saying is, God is going to build the temple. And I think that same sort of thing is happening here. 
God is not mentioned specifically, but he is implied. In other words, when Jesus says you will be judged, this is a reminder here of who is the one true judge of all things. That is God himself, and he will be judging. That's the scary thing about this verse. It's this idea, yes, sure, we can go about judging people, but God will eventually judge us. God is referred to as the great judge in Scripture. In Psalm 96, the psalmist paints this picture of all of creation rejoicing and singing as God comes to judge the earth in righteousness and the people in truth. Paul talked about the day when God would judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, and so on and so forth. So God is the ultimate judge of all. And now Jesus reminds us of the danger that's involved when we judge others. So in verse 2, Jesus speaks of the judgments that we pronounce and the fact that we will be judged by that same standard. And so what he's meaning there is that, let's say if I call you a hypocrite and I condemn you for that, then I'm showing that I agree that being a hypocrite is wrong. And I'm also agreeing that I can and should be judged by that same standard. Reporter Karen Boda back in 2013 wrote a story about a judge in Michigan who handed down an unusual ruling. Uh, judge Raymond Vogt had a clearly posted policy in his courtroom that electronic devices causing a disturbance during court sessions would result in the owner being cited with contempt of court. And he would usually impose a $25 fine if someone was guilty of that. But on this one Friday afternoon in 2013, during the prosecutor's closing argument, the judge's new smartphone, which happened to be in his shirt pocket, started to loudly request that the judge give the phone voice commands for voice dialing. The judge explained it this way. He said, I'm guessing I, I bumped it somehow. It started talking really loud, saying, I can't understand you. My face got red as a beet. The judge went on to try to turn the, the phone off, but it just kept talking and creating a disturbance. The judge explained it this way. He said, I set the bar high because cell phones are a distraction and there's serious business going on. The courtroom is a special place in the community and it needs more respect than that. So I tow a tough line and I had to back it up that afternoon. So at the next recess, the judge actually held himself in contempt of court and fined himself $25. And he paid that fine immediately. In a similar way, what we're seeing here in the text is that we will be judged ourselves. And as followers of Christ, we also know that we will be measured against God's holy standard. And when that happens, we will undoubtedly be found wanting and guilty because none of us can live up to that high and holy standard. Now let me ask you this. What chance would you or I have if God were to judge us with the same critical and condemning spirit that Jesus is calling out in these verses. If God were to be judgmental in this way, 
condemning us by a standard that, that we've agreed to because we've condemned others by that same standard, surely we would be lost. We'd be guilty and without hope. Now, thankfully, God doesn't come to us in that spirit of condemnation if we know Jesus. Because for those who have sought forgiveness for sin through Jesus' great sacrifice on the cross, God approaches us with patience and mercy and grace. But God does hate it when we are judgmental and condemning of others, when we have that critical condemning spirit. Because God does not do that with us. Jesus says, do not condemn others, because that is not what I have done with you. So judge not. Now to reinforce this teaching, Jesus follows up this idea with a practical alternative to judging. Let's take a look. We want to look at verses 3 to 5. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, Jesus uses a colorful image here, and he calls us to examine the log that is in our eye before we take the speck out of our brother's eye. Now, these are clearly not literal logs and specks. They're clearly referring to problems that we have to deal with, some imperfection or some fault that we need to correct and address in order to live right before God. And there are two things I want to point out at this point. The first is that in contrast to the critical attitude of the judgmental person, Jesus calls us to try and help the other person who has something wrong in his or her life. He calls us to provide assistance to take the speck out of our brother's eye. And this, this just follows along with so much of the rest of Scripture which calls us to be willing and ready to bless and to provide help to those in need. But the language of verse 5 is very interesting because it suggests that we can't really help the other person until we've dealt with our own problems and imperfections. And there's a couple of ways that that can be true. There is a sense, I think, in which we can uniquely speak to our struggling brother or sister's issue when we have recognized it in ourselves and gone through the process of dealing with it first. I think that's why it's often the person who uh, has gone through an addiction, for instance, that can really be of help to someone who is struggling with that. Or the person who has struggled with some sort of sin, whether it's bitterness or anger or lust or whatever, can best help someone else in that same struggle. Now, this is not a hard and fast rule, but generally speaking, I think a knowledge of the struggle enables us to speak with wisdom and compassion to the issue. And Jesus calls us to deal with our issues first. The second thing to notice is what Jesus does quite deliberately with the sizes of these problems. Usually when we're critical of someone else or we have a judgmental spirit, we think that someone else's sin is way worse than our own. 
So, you know, we may get a bit grumpy one day, and we'll excuse that by saying, oh, we're just having a bad day. But if our spouse gets grumpy, well, then he or she, you know, they're like that all the time, and it's just too much to bear anymore. Or we may forget to do something that at work, and we'll say, you know, this, the task was just too much for us, or we were too busy. But if our coworker makes that same mistake, well, you know what, then that coworker, they're irresponsible, or they're lazy, or they don't care, or they're just lousy at their job. In cases like that, we see the log in our brother's eye. They're the ones who have the really big problem. But in these verses, Jesus reverses the situation. And he says, we're the ones with the, prob the big problem in our eye, the log in our eye. The bigger problem here is not that our brother has a failing, but that we have failed to deal with our own sin. The willingness to acknowledge our own sin should be the first thing that we do. God's Word knows nothing of a people of faith that are unwilling to practice this kind of self-examination in an effort to address our shortcomings and our sinful heart. This self-examination should be like second nature to us. It is part and parcel of what it means to be a follower of Christ. That may be why in verse 5 of this passage, Matthew actually calls those that he is criticizing hypocrites, or Jesus does. Matthew uses, or Jesus uses a particular word for hypocrite that he only uses actually once in his entire gospel, and it's in this passage in verse 5. We need to deal with our sin because it is so essential to the core of how we're to live as followers of Christ. Failure for us to do that is to be hypocritical. Now, I know we would much prefer to criticize someone else's sin than look at our own. I kind of chuckle at the story that came out of California some time ago, back in March of 2006. There was a city dump truck that had backed into a car owned by a fellow by the name of Curtis Goki. And the car was damaged really badly, so Goki sued the city for the cost of the damages to his car. Now that seems completely reasonable. I mean, if a city truck did that to my vehicle, I, I would seek a compensation from the city in exactly the same way. But the unusual part of this story is that Goki was actually a city employee and he was the one driving the dump truck that ran over his car. In the end, his lawsuit was dismissed. Is the court reason that he couldn't really sue himself. And it's kind of a humorous example, but I think it's an accurate picture of what we often do with our own sin. Goki readily acknowledged during the trial that he was the driver of the dump truck, but he preferred to ignore that fact, and he wanted someone else to be responsible and someone else to pay for his mistake. And Jesus says, no. Lay your critical spirit aside Acknowledge your own sin, own it, deal with it first, and then get ready to help someone overcome theirs. This is the better path that Jesus calls us to follow. 
Now, there's one last verse that I want to look at here, and it's a verse that reminds us again of what Jesus is not saying in this part of his Sermon on the Mount. And we're in verse 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. As is so often true with Jesus' teaching and in the Christian life as a whole, our calling is to walk in the way of Christ as we are balancing seemingly two opposite ends of a spectrum. So, for example, we need to discipline on the one hand, but we also need to be forgiving and show grace on the other. We need to let the world see our good deeds and bring glory to God, but we also need to be careful to do things not to be seen and to garner praise. We declare Jesus to be the Prince of Peace on the one hand, and yet we are reminded when he said that he had come not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. So there are these tensions that we navigate as followers of Christ, and this verse falls into that category as well. We've just heard Jesus say that we're not to be judgmental of others, and now here he goes ahead calling people pigs, and dogs, both of which would have been considered great insults and repulsive in his culture. He tells us to be careful before sharing God's truth with such people. God's truth is generally understood to be the pearls that are mentioned in this verse. So how are we to understand this? A couple of things can help us make sense of what's happening here. First, I don't think that Jesus actually looks at people and considers them pigs and dogs. This would contradict what he's just finished saying. He's just finished calling us not to be judgmental, to not write people off, and that would seem to be kind of what we're doing when we use that kind of language. Rather, it makes more sense, I think, to see Jesus using hyperbole or emphasis to make his point here. Uh, this is similar to the language he used you may recall when he was talking about, you know, cutting off limbs if they caused you to sin. Uh, we don't think he was actually asking us to do that, but he was using that strong language in order to make his point and help people understand the seriousness of what he was talking about. And that lead, leads me to the second thing here, and I think what we, what we need to say here is that Jesus is using strong language to emphasize that even as we are refraining from judging and condemning other people, that doesn't mean that we are not to be discerning or make value judgments. We are absolutely called to use our critical faculties to separate truth from error, good from evil, and even to call people out on occasion if the situation warrants. Let's not forget, God expects us to make value judgments. He gave judges to the people in the Old Testament so that they might settle disputes and enforce laws. He gave them the laws and the standards by which they were to make those judgments. Jesus calls us to judge between false and true prophets by studying their fruit. He set the standard himself when he called out the teachers of the law and the Pharisees as hypocrites. We see that in Matthew chapter 25. 
Church discipline is to be practiced where God's holy standard for his church is violated. And there are critical judgments that we need to make every single day as we decide on the morality and the wisdom of certain actions. So we need to be discerning and we need to make value judgments all the time. In fact, a just and functioning society is really impossible without that critical kind of thinking. And so Jesus calls us to make these judgments. Now, people hate to hear this part. People love to quote this idea of non-judging. They will say, you know, don't judge me. Judge not, lest ye be judged also. And it sounds positively biblical. But often people are saying that to avoid getting called out for their sin or their mistakes. And when they say that, they are misapplying and misunderstanding this passage. Jesus is saying in this instruction, yes, you must make value judgments. Just don't do it with a critical and a mean spirit. Don't do it in a way that condemns people. Do it. Show people the truth with love and with grace. So in this particular verse, verse 6, I think all that Jesus seems to be saying here is exercise your faculties, make a judgment about who you're speaking with. And if you think who you're about to share God's truth with is, is really not interested at all and will just throw your words into the dirt, well, then refrain from speaking to that person uh, lest you get attacked for your trouble. So, there we have it. Judge not, lest ye be judged also. Make value judgments where needed, but avoid a critical and condemning spirit when dealing with others. That's really the essence of what Jesus is saying here. So let me leave you with a couple of thoughts to close. First, this may very well be the first time that some of us have heard God spoken of as the holy and righteous judge of all mankind. And in hearing that, you may just now be getting in touch with the fact that there is sin in your life, that things are not up to God's holy standard. You may be just in this moment recognizing your need for forgiveness and your need to come before the one who will judge heaven and earth and to seek his mercy as he determines your eternal destiny, be it heaven or hell. And if that is you, then I have good news. The one and only true and holy judge stands ready to grant forgiveness and acceptance if we will accept the answer that he has sent for our sin. His son Jesus, who died on the cross and offered himself as a sacrifice, payment for our sin, if we would declare our need, turn from our sin, repent, and choose to believe and accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. If that is you, then I want to encourage you to silently pray a prayer of repentance. Tell God you need his forgiveness and take Jesus as your Savior. You could do it right where you are. And if you pray that to him, God will be faithful to hear, to answer, 
and to accept you into his kingdom. Secondly, if you suffer from a critical spirit, then my encouragement to you is to come before God in repentance and surrender that attitude to him right now. Stop worrying about the sin of others so much and get better at dealing with your own sin. One of the church leaders of the 10th century said this, they who are conscious of their own sins have no eyes for the sins of their neighbors. Try taking a page out of the history of British cycling. I, I, I love this story. Uh, James Clear in his book, Atomic Habits, talks about how the uh, cycling team from Britain about 20 years ago was really in a desperate situation. As far back as 1908, uh, the Brits had only won one single Olympic gold medal. And their performance was so bad that one of the bike manufacturers wanted to make sure that he did not sell any of his bikes to the team for fear of people thinking that if this team was riding them, uh, the bikes must be no good. You've got to be pretty bad for a businessman to decide that. The organization then hired a fellow by the name of Dave Brailsford. And Brailsford had a relentless commitment to search for a tiny margin of improvement in everything that they did. And so his philosophy was you break down everything that goes into riding a bike, you improve it by 1%, and then you're going to get a significant improvement when you bring it all back together. And that's exactly what they did. They redesigned the bike seats for more comfort. They rubbed alcohol on the tires for a better grip. They had the riders switch out their, their uh, uh, uniforms for more, uh, a more aerodynamic design. And when the space, in the space of just five years, the British cycling team dominated cycling events at the 2008 Olympic Games in Beijing. They won an astounding 60% of the gold medals. And four years later, in London, the team set nine Olympic records and seven world records. So let me ask you this. Is God asking you to make a change in the way you view others? Is he calling you to be less judgmental, to be more gracious, more loving to those around you? Is there some person that you know that you need to be less judgmental towards? If so, then take that situation or that purpose, that person, I should say, to God in prayer, and I ask God to show you one small way, even a 1% change that you can make or one small thing that you can do that will make you less judgmental and more loving towards that person. Ask God for the strength to do that. And then go and do that small thing. And then repeat that exercise the next day and the next and so on until you can say without any reservation that God has given you the power to lay aside your judgmental attitude and to love another the way he has loved you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, forgive us when we have allowed judgmental and condemning attitudes and thoughts to linger within our minds and hearts. We are so thankful 
for the way you have showered us with your love and grace. And now we ask that you would help us to be gracious, without exception, to those around us. May we be discerning without being judgmental. May we be truthful without being condemning. Help us to judge, not lest we be judged also. Help us to love that we and others might be loved also. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.